0: All right, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read the whole of the chapter. We're going to spend two or three weeks in this chapter. There are things that I will explain. Verses 6 forward, um, I'm going to explain in terms of focusing on the beginning of the chapter. Uh, And what we're going to do is we're going to come back and rehash kind of the issues of of the objection that occurs in verse 14. Verse 14 is this objection about the justice of God and predestination. So my intention now is to deal with the beginning piece, and we'll be focusing on the justice of God and predestination next week. Um, but we've hit on some of those points in chapter 8, but it's an important thing to be able to give an answer for, so my desire is to give you a sound pattern of words, to be able to engage on it, to understand it deeply, and to Uh, have that in such a way that you can think about it in association with texts. So let's read Romans chapter 9. All right. Romans 9 verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. For my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. Because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, or hosts, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been like made, made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness? Even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. But as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The beginning of the chapter has a startling beginning especially given the context that in most evangelical churches you will hear that swearing is something that we really shouldn't do, and that comes out of dispensationalism. What happens is you, you have this teaching in the Old Testament that's very clear about swearing and when it should be done, and you have Jesus teaching that we ought not to swear, we should let our yes be yes and our no be no. And so when you read Romans 9, verse 1, and you see Paul say, I tell the truth in Christ, which sounds like it's on the verge of swearing, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. The second reference to the Holy Spirit is very obviously swearing. Because you're asking the Holy Spirit... To bear witness to it. So the oath is depending upon God as witness to curse or bless. And so this is a double oath the telling of the truth in Christ and the bearing witness by the conscience and the Holy Spirit. There is a double oath here. Now that should indicate to us one, that there's an approved example of swearing. This is breathed out by God, and it's given to us for our edification. And so we need to interpret Jesus in such a way that he does not contradict Paul, and Paul in such a way that he does not contradict Jesus, and the Old Testament in such a way that it doesn't contradict either of them, right? So we need to see how scripture relates to scripture, and see it as a logical system. But in addition to that, I would suggest to you that Paul's double oath is meant to draw attention to the fact that he thinks this is very important. You you, you give an oath for testimony about a public vow, right? You're, you're swearing to do something. So public business, important business. And you also do it when you are giving testimony in a court. And so what's being said, you're emphasizing the importance of what's said and the importance of truth-telling. And so Paul here is emphasizing the importance and the Importance of his own concern to be taken as telling the truth. We also have an interesting uh, reality in this first verse that we have uh, exclusive categories that are contrasted with each other. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Right? These are mutually exclusive categories, and we're going to see that when we get to Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. There's another one of those. This is a common. Uh, way of speaking in the scriptures where things that are contradictory are laid side by side so you have a and non-a and you're saying i am a i'm not non-a or i am non-a i'm not a so that laying side by side is a part of the logic embedded in the revealed truth from god And we see logic itself as a a part of the system, that without logic you can't understand any language, and that the scriptures are designed so as to help us to set things beside each other and get clear distinctions. So we have discernment, we can differentiate between things because of the laying of them side by side. The book of Proverbs is meant for training in that, right? It has this process of laying things side by side and requiring us to reason through it. But there are other more plain places, like this text itself, that lays things in contrast next to each other. Now, what is he swearing about? Paul is, is concerned, remember the context of, of Romans 8, this idea that God predestines everything for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And what's happening here is, okay, you're making the claim, Paul, is there's a casting off of some Jews... And at the same time, you're trying to get us to believe the promises of God to be comforted in the midst of our suffering in this life. So which is it, Paul? Does he keep his promises and we can be comforted? Or does he not keep his promises and the Jews are being cast off and we get to be saved? Neither one's particularly great. And so his answer is to say, you've misunderstood. Do you you think you actually understand the promises? And this is a callback to examine what you have read before and to consider, do you actually understand the promises that God gave to the Jews? Now, the church has done a really bad job at this because dispensationalism, again, the same sort of reading that would get you to believe that there's not going to be a continuation of commandments about oaths. That same belief system would have you believe that the promises given to the Jews are given to the Jews as distinct from the church. And so if that happens, then Paul's answer here does not make sense. Paul's answer here is going to show us that we need to see the promises that were given to the Jews were promises, the promises given to Israel, given to Abraham. These promises are promises that were always for the elect of God. So, in this this is something that would be hard to hear for Jews, and so somebody might start to say, "Paul is a Jew hater. He's an anti-Semite, an anti-Semite. He 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 hates himself. He hates this. He he he's become anti-Jewish." And so his goal here is to demonstrate ethos, right? That he cares for the good of this Jewish audience, and so he's saying that he swears. In fact, he swears again that he has great sorrow and continual grief in his heart. What about? About the Israelites being cast off. So, this great sorrow and continual grief, right? This is the magnitude of his grief and the constancy of his grief. Showing that this is not, it's not as though he's, he's having ups and downs of mood. He is continuously desirous of the well-being of the Jewish people, of the Israelites. Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Now, when you read this, it, I hope it is startling to you. And the reason I hope it's startling is because being cut off from Christ, being accursed from Christ, right that would be losing The very thing he just spent chapter 8 telling us to be comforted by. That nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate us from the knowledge of God that we have. Nothing can separate us from our possession of the good. And he seems to be willing to trade the good for something else. Something lower. And so, is Paul here contradicting himself in that way? And... There are multiple attempts to interpret this to avoid this very problem. Um, This this idea, anathema, is is very close uh, to another word, um, anathema, uh, which kind of means devoted to God. So some people say "There's, there's an epsilon, the anathema, and maybe that a is actually a, and we can read it as anathema, which means devoted to God. Well, that's not something that you can really support from textual evidence. It's wishful thinking. And so, this desire to make it into another word, though convenient, seems to be a twisting of the scriptures. So, perhaps we could consider the word anathema. Are there other uses of it? Well, there's the use of it that means dead. And some people try to interpret Paul here as saying, okay, Paul is saying he'd be willing to die for the Jews, which is a big deal, right? And he, he, he does frequently put himself in danger for the preaching to the Jews. The Jews have beaten him and stoned him and, and tried to harm him in all sorts of ways. And so that seems to fit well here. But the death is followed by this little clause, apo Christos, okay, which is from Christ, so death from Christ so it's not death from the Jews it's not death by the Jews, it's not it's death from Christ and so some people try to say, well maybe we can make that into death by Christ, right, like death by whatever. I mean, there's people die from lots of things. Maybe Christ could kill him, right? And ultimately, the decree of God controls everything, so anybody who dies, dies by Christ, and and so there we have it. That seems to be a forced construction that we can't find anywhere else, in any Greek writings, anywhere. And so, this seems like an effort to force a construction that uh, is a twisting of the grammar. Um, so there's two explanations that I think uh, fit well. I'm sorry, actually, there's one more that's this wrong that I want to point out. People try to suggest that maybe this was Paul's attitude before when he didn't know as well. And so it's past tense. Okay? But it's not. This is the imperfect. It's present tense. Okay? So this is, this is Paul saying, I, right now, as I'm writing, could desire this. So the word could... I think solves the problem for us. This is a conditional statement. And that conditional statement makes it so that he is essentially saying, if it were proper, if it were right, I could do this. Now you go, well, what does that mean? That sounds, like, that sounds like an explaining way to mean nothing. What I think that means is, he's saying there's only one thing that I care about more than saving the Jewish people. And that is the possession of the knowledge of Christ. So he's saying this this sort of hypothetical conditional. Now, I'll explain that a little bit more, but I want to explain something else that's a little bit easier to get first. And this is kind of the common way of explaining this. um, And that is, maybe this is an Eastern expression that's hyperbolic. It's just a figure of speech. It's hyperbolic. You know, I could even cut myself off from Christ uh, for your good. There are lots of expressions like that in the East, even to the modern time, uh, and that was frequent in kind of the eastern part of the Mediterranean. In the past, you use kind of, uh, think about up to half my kingdom, right? I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. Was the king actually offering half the kingdom? I mean, no, but it's a hyperbolic expression of desire for someone's good. So that's fine. That that can answer it. And I think that's an acceptable answer. Um, but I, I think that we don't need to go there because of the grammar of the text. And I think the grammar of the text provides us with the reality that we have. Uh, there's this combination of the fact that there's a statement about something, a declarative statement about something, and it's incomplete. And those together are used to make it so that you have a conditional, oftentimes, in Greek. So... I have a quote there uh, that is found in Charles Hodge's commentary on the book of Romans in a footnote. And uh, there's another guy he's quoting. His name is August Tholuck, who was a uh, a theologian in Germany. And so this explanation, and and it's offered by a lot of people when you see people writing on the syntax of the Greek or the, the grammatical rules, and they will, they will say, essentially, what Augustus says there. And he says, The indicative of the imperfect expresses exactly the impossibility of that for which one wishes. So, in other words, this structure of the sentence serves the, 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 the effect of saying this thing isn't possible. Um, and therefore, it's not really my desire but the idea that it would be the next thing so because of its impossibility he does not desire that he would be cut off from Christ but that this is the next thing so his, his second greatest desire after the possession of the knowledge of Christ is to see the Jewish people brought to the knowledge of Christ so I know that's a uh, probably a little bit difficult to follow i have it there in writing for you i'm happy to talk about that more Uh, but uh, i believe that helps to resolve the issue so let's consider the fact that this is a conditional statement okay He, he is saying i could wish that i am cut off from christ And the question, if there's a condition there, is what's the condition? So if it were not improper, if it were not irrational, to reject the highest good for a lesser thing. So the point is, we're on page 4, the point is that Paul's second highest objective after knowing God is seeing God glorified by the conversion of the Jews, both because of Paul's love for God and Paul's love for the Israelites, who are his people and the people who have received more from God than any other people. And so this charge that God is somehow unfaithful is something that he looks forward to seeing thrown out as the Jewish people are brought back after there is a large-scale repentance amongst the Jewish people. And so we'll see that later as we uh, get to chapter 11 of Romans. We'll talk about that in more detail. So he'll come back to this subject matter But that's what I understand him uh, to be expressing there. So the Israelites are being viewed in this text as a a national group. uh, A national church in the old covenant versus an international church in the new covenant. They are recipients of adoption glory, covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. And we also have the, the patriarchs were in their midst and Christ came from them after the flesh. So... Let's ask ourselves, who are these Israelites? The, the name Israel comes from Genesis 32, and I have the story down there in the footnote. And we see that Jacob wrestles with God, and this name is given to him in that context. And, and the name Israel, that's used to replace Jacob, means a prince with God, or one who strives against God, or... Uh, perhaps even rules with God or strives with as opposed to against fights with as opposed to against Uh, and so this idea of the vice regency of man and in particular the restoration of that in a holy people is there in the name these people are the ones who are princes with God think about the fact that we are prophet priests and kings in Christ Right, this royal priesthood that is contained there in this name, Israel. And so, the Israelites are with God as ones who rule or fight with God. And yet, so often, there is a reality that there's a fighting, so it would seem, with God in the sense of being against him. And even the story itself, the origin where Jacob is wrestling against God, he's not wrestling with God, you know, doing a double-team thing against two other guys or whatever, right? He's, he's wrestling with this kind of appearance of God. And so that seems to be a wordplay, which you find often in Scripture, where something, the, the wrestling with God looks like wrestling against, but the ambiguity is intentional, and it points to the idea that by wrestling against God and trying to get a blessing from God, that is in reality how we work together with God seeking to get the blessing from God. So that name itself points to these things, and we we see all of the things that are given to Israel. We have the adoption, or the word is literally sonship. And so this could further cause alarm. This is a difficult text. (laughs) The sonship, weren't we just encouraged back in chapter 8 that the spirit of adoption helps us to have certainty of our own salvation and now you're telling me that these Jewish people, they were adopted they had sonship and they are being cast off in some way and so what we're forced to deal with there is that there's two ways we have to deal with adoption there is the external and there is the spirit of adoption with the internal there is the external call and there is the internal call and so we have to look at the outward elements of the administration of the covenant versus the inward possession. And so there's this adoption, there's a, there's a glory, we talk about external glory, and we talk about seeing that glory, right? There's covenants, and we can... We can believe the promises of the covenant or not. We can, we can use the administration of the covenant with faith or not. Many people who receive the sign of the covenant are not saved. And we can see from there that many people hear the law, even try to obey certain things outwardly in the law, yet are not saved. Do the service of God and, and hear the promises. And These are all glorious things. These things are glorious. And now with the church, even with less outward pomp, we have a more glorious administration. The New covenant is more glorious. And yet many people receive the outward things and are not converted. Many who are baptized apostatize. When you take the Lord's Supper, leave, disdaining the thing they have eaten. And so the same question could be asked about the new administration. Is this of no effect? So let's walk through these individual things and consider the glory associated with these, right? Adoption. This external adoption on page four point C. The nation was made into a covenanted people. The the visible church was largely coextensive with Israel. There were people who would come in. There were people who would make profession but not be circumcised. Circumcising would bring you into the people of Israel. And we see in the new covenant administration, there's no longer a need to become a part of the Jewish people, the, the people of Israel, in order to enter the covenant people in terms of the kingdom. And so we have... This giving of baptism that replaces circumcision. But at the time, essentially a coextensive nature in terms of who is considered an Israelite and who is considered a churchman. The outward glory that's given. Sometimes the interpretation is there's an adoption of glory. So you say, look, there's an adoption of glory as opposed to the internal adoption. I don't think that's what the text is saying. I think this is talking about the presence of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory that was present in the temple. And you know, we have, someone might say, you know, mocking the church now, you know, oh, is this powerful to save? You have people that are, that are, that are brought in and legally acknowledged in baptism. You have people that then, you know, they, there's this outward glory in terms of the presence of Christ by the preaching of the word and by faith as we take the Lord's Supper. And so the presence of God has no power to change. So you might say the Shekinah glory of God has no power to change and save. This is the same sort of mocking that could occur. The the covenants the diatheke. You look from from Abraham up to Jesus, all these covenants are with the Hebrews. We have the earlier covenants, the covenant of works, the covenant given to Adam in terms of the giving of the gospel in Genesis 3. We have the Noahic covenant, the in Genesis 8 and 9. The Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15. We have the Mosaic covenant that's given and we look at Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy to understand that well. And we look at the Davidic covenant. All this stuff and the content when you look at the promise given to Adam and the covenant given to Noah. Those, Those two covenants The content in them is so much less information that is at least preserved for us in scripture than what you see in the Abrahamic Mosaic and Davidic covenants and not to not to overwhelm but then we add on the new covenant the covenant of grace administered after Christ and we see all of that given as well to the Jewish people to the Israelites and so that seems like a lot more than what was said to Adam and Noah. So, the giving of the covenants overwhelmingly is given to this people, the Israelite people. And there's a breakdown of some of that content. The next thing, the giving of the law. We see that law in, in the Mosaic covenant laid out in extraordinary detail. Is there... Oracles of duty, the whole system of legislation given by God. And that made Israel a people with a far greater wisdom than the other nations. They were given good principles, but then ignored them in pride and conceit. Israel neglected thoughtful seeking of the meaning of things, propounded in the law, and inverted the order of things. So let, let me give you an example of that. You might say, oh look, all the seed of Abraham, that's, the, that's people that are saved. Well, Paul's explaining, look, you've you've read the seed of Abraham as there's only one meaning for that. There are multiple meanings for that term. There's the seed by promise, and there's the seed by the flesh. There's even the seed who receives this kind of external covenant sign. And so understanding that terms have different meanings and trying to see what the meaning is should be obvious, but these people have the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs intentionally lays things that appear contradictory side by side so that there's an effort to understand how to interpret. It's a book that teaches us how to interpret by making us wrestle with things. So in not seeking, there's this literalism, A woodenness. And that literalism, that woodenness to reading, makes it so that they don't understand the promises, the neglecting, thoughtful seeking of the meaning. And so we see the inversion of the order of things, right? For example, with the Sabbath, as opposed to the Sabbath being something that's for the good of man, for man to grow in the knowledge of God, the Pharisees made rules that made it so that the Sabbath was a burden, and by using these rules, they inverted the order and they ended up acting as though man was created for the Sabbath so that man has to do all his work to serve the Sabbath as opposed to the Sabbath being a tool to help man delight in the knowledge of God. So these things together increased blindness. You have the prophets coming And there's an avoiding of the prophets, an avoiding of the correction that the prophets brought oftentimes. And this avoiding of correction was not always through avoiding hearing their words. It was through not thinking those things through well, this Pharisaic fideism or a skepticism where there's a neglecting of things like the Sadducees and a sort of pragmatic following from that. When the prophets come and push through that, the resistance often comes in a physical form, punishing of the prophets, killing them even. And then when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, there is a denying of the truth to the very face of truth. Christ to his truth itself. He speaks truth. He does not lie. May deny him to his face. So the preaching of the law, which Christ did so magnificently, right? He takes the law and he applies it to the heart. He, sa- he doesn't just say, you know, you know, the law says don't commit adultery. It also says don't lust after a woman in your heart. The law says don't commit murder. It also says don't hate your neighbor in your heart, Right? He magnified the understanding of the law by connecting the particular commandments, the sixth one for murder, the seventh for adultery, to the tenth commandment, right, about the inward attitude, saying, don't covet. And he's saying, look, let's take these things and compare the tenth commandment with the sixth or with the seventh and see how they help us to interpret our own inward thoughts and help us to see which thoughts are evil. The giving of the law. The service, the, the, the language in, in the, the scripture there literally is just the service, the, the latria. Um, you, you probably have kind of an italicized of God or of the things of God. This is talking about that priestly service, all the pomp of the old covenant. And to correct myself, I can't remember who I was talking to, but somebody here, I think I was saying liturgy and latria are rooted in the same. Etymology, and they're not. I don't know. I think I made that mistake with one of you, so hopefully it was somebody who's here, so that can be corrected. Uh, they're not. Uh, so, But this idea that uh, Latria, the service, we have the, the priestly service and all of its pomp, that was given. And so there's this outward glory in that service, and that's a part of the covenant that's given the administration of the covenant. Now, All of that given to Israel as a distinct people. They're given the promises, the evangelia, the gospel, the oracles of redemptions. We have the law, we have the, the worship, we have the gospel. They had the fathers in their midst. They had Christ come from them by the flesh. There is a fulfilling of all of God's promises to them. He's given these things. These were the things that were promised. And he calls Christ here the eternally blessed God. Now, we've seen the greatness of all the things that were given to the Israelites. But I want to take a side note here. I'm going to dance away from the main point for a second so be patient with me romans 9 5 is a verse that you should remember well seek to store that away in your mind it is a common thing by liberal critics of the bible to say that paul does not teach the same thing as the other apostles and they try to pretend that paul never calls jesus god okay so remember that claim they claim that God never call sorry that Paul never calls Jesus God. Romans 9 5, Paul explicitly calls Christ the eternally blessed God. Now it's obvious from many of the things that Paul says that he believes that Christ is God. And there's, there's other places where this is explained. But Christ came, who was over all. The eternally blessed God. So make note of that text. It's a good one to be able to show that these people have no idea what they're talking about. Now, they can try to say, they, they they lie about lots of books not being written by Paul that are written by Paul, but Romans is not typically one that they will say was not written by Paul. And so it's always a nice trap to say, which books do you think were written by Paul? And then, because they think they've got you when they list out their special books that are not actually written by Paul, you take it to Romans, and you say, okay, so you see that you don't actually know what you're talking about. That your understanding of the scriptures is minimal. And that you've rejected them without understanding them. Verse 6. So we had all this list of stuff, all these great things that were given to Israel. Verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect right the promise and also all these oracles coming it's not like there was there was no effect for they are not all Israel who are of Israel so now we have the word Israel laid side by side and the question is how do we take the word Israel there's multiple senses for the word nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham what how does that work aren't, aren't the seed the children and so there's different kinds of children different kinds of seed his point is not that when you see the word children, that you need to have a, a, a special reading for that particular term, and when you see the, the term seed, you need to have a special reading for that term. His point is, these terms are used synonymously, and rightly so, and the question is, what kind of children, what kind of seed? So that was sons, okay? There's three terms here in the Greek. There's a term for son, there's a term for children, there's a term for seed. Those are all there in the text, and they're being used interchangeably. So we're told to think about, okay, so how is the word of God taking effect as opposed to taking no effect? Well, not everyone that's a part of Israel is of Israel. Okay, so this, other, in other words, not everyone who's a part of the fleshly Israel is a part of the spiritual Israel. You could also turn that around and say not everybody who is a part of the spiritual Israel is of the fleshly Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now remember there's Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac is the one through whom the promises continue down. Ishmael receives circumcision at age 13. It's probably more memorable, memorable for him than Isaac's was for him. And yet, the promise descends through Isaac. That is... Those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. So, what Paul is doing is he's interpreting for us, In Isaac, your seed shall be called. He's saying that means those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. There's not an equality between those two categories. Not every child of the flesh is the child of God, of Abraham. But rather, some of the children of his flesh, specifically The ones of promise are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Now, earlier on in Romans 4 and Romans 3, Paul helped us to see how we can be children of promise by believing the promise. And so, it's not just that not all Jews are saved physical Jews, descendants of Israel. But also, some who are outside of Israel are saved. So both of those things are being put forward for us, and we're starting to... He's trying to show how this is always what was taught. Verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So believing that the line would continue to the Messiah is the word to be believed. All right, so go to page 8. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, okay? So we have Abraham and Sarah, we have Ishmael from Hag- we have Ishmael from Hagar, and we have Isaac from Sarah, and we're showing how the promise in terms of The covenant descending and and the establishing of the covenant is through Isaac. And here now, we move not only to that, but now when we move to Rebekah and the children, Jacob and Esau, here we have not only a difference in terms of who will have the covenant go through them to get to the Messiah and the, the giving of the ordinances and the oracles, but also reprobation and election. Ishmael is said to have been blessed there's, there's texts that talk about the grace of God there's Ishmael Ishmael was a believer Esau not only does not have the line through him Esau rejects the faith Verse 10, not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So my intention this week, I'm going to walk through this, and my goal is to leave with you, the desire to work through to a greater extent how we deal with this in relation to the justice of God. So I'm going to lay the truth out there and not give an explanation of the justice of God in doing so today. These people were not born. Jacob and Esau. So you're telling me that God hated someone before he was was even born? It's the doctrine of unconditional election and reprobation. The text says, not having done any good or evil. So you're telling me that God hated someone before he did any evil? Before that person did any evil? It's the doctrine of unconditional election and reprobation. It's so that the purpose of God according to election might stand. The purpose of God according to election. That God chose someone without regard to personal merit. This is unconditional election and reprobation. It's not of works. it's, It's of him who calls. God chose someone without regard to personal merit. This is unconditional election and reprobation. The older shall serve the younger. This is an inversion of the natural and legal order of things. The inheritance rights, this is being planned to be taken away. And so this is God doing something that's meant to be offensive, especially to people from the time of the writing of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now we've just been, right? Uh, stick with me, friends. We've We've just been comparing how terms side by side that, that are mutually exclusive help us to see categories more clearly. And we've seen how even, even when terms are, are laid side by side uh, that are the same, we have to figure out how to differentiate them because they might be used in different senses here. Now, this one I think is pretty easy for us. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And the Apostle Paul seems to be using them to refer to the same sort of thing, the attitude of God because he's talking about the treating of Jacob differently from Esau. We're not transitioning to one kind of love versus another kind of love. Some people will translate this and they'll say, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I loved less. Ever heard that? You go back and read where this is taken out of, Malachi. It doesn't seem, when you start to read the curses that are given to Esau there, that it means loved less. Seems like it means hated. So, posit one, God does not love everyone. At least Esau, he seems to have hated. Posit two, God does not hate everyone. At least Jacob, he seems to have loved. Everyone is someone whom God either hates or loves. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and so, you know, hopefully this makes you terrified of God. Love and hatred are mutually exclusive categories. God does not have contradictory attitudes or desires. Grace is not common, universal, it's not for everybody. Grace is particular. Now, one of the common explanations here is the doctrine of common grace. And I would suggest to you that if grace is common, then grace is not the effectual cause of salvation. Grace is particular. Grace, does, is not, grace is the attitude of favor in the mind of God towards an object that doesn't deserve it, and in fact, it deserves the opposite. And so, if grace is common and everyone is saved, grace is not common. And there are not lesser forms of love in the mind of God. God. God's love is his desire for the well-being of the object. Now, I will deal with this in detail next time, as the Apostle Paul does. But we are told by God, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Comments, questions, objections from voting members and then with floor rights? All right then um, let's open up our let's pray father we thank you for your word we thank you that you have laid out things in the text to make us it's easy for us to see some things and other parts are more difficult we ask that you would give us clarity of thought to understand your word and we ask that you would help us to see your word as a system that the system of truth would be something we more and more understand, see in its whole, and see the details filling it out. I ask that you would cause us to be focused on your glory and to understand the book that you have given to us as a book for your glory. We thank you that your promises are not of zero effect but rather that you have saved those who are of israel you have saved the elect and not saved everyone who is of the flesh from israel we thank you that you have saved us that we are not often many of us here are not of the flesh coming from israel father we thank you that you will bring nations to submit to your son We ask that you would do all this for your glory. Amen.